in Paul's analogy that he had of the marriage contract, the husband dies, but here we find that it's Christ who dies to set us free from the law, that we're in contract with the law. The law didn't die to set us free, but Christ, the groomsman, he died to set the bride of Christ free. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. You're on a big merry-go-round and it's taking you for a ride. You've got to let go and let go. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I have to tell you, as you get into teaching the Bible verse by verse, going through the various books of the Bible, and I've went through, well, about five books left for me to go, you come to certain chapters, and there's just some that stand out. And so coming to the book of Romans, knowing that I'd be teaching the book of Romans, my choice, I wanted to go through it with us, I had, I wouldn't say use the word dread, chapter 7. I can't say that I could use the word look forward to teaching chapter 7. I believe chapter 7 is one of those difficult chapters in all of the Bible that we struggle with it because Paul is describing the condition of life before knowing Jesus in this chapter. And he's specifically talking to his Jewish brethren. So I just want you to note that in the beginning, the very first verse, he speaks to those who know the law. He's talking to the Jewish brethren. But although he's talking to his Jewish brethren, he seems to be so describing the condition of Christians, how we feel at times struggling in our walk and relationship with the Lord. So we're going to do our best to work our way through this chapter, taking 12 verses this week. We'll not look at it next week because it's Mother's Day, and then we'll pick it up again after Mother's Day the following week and conclude Romans chapter 7. The key to all of Romans 7, I think one key is that he's talking to his Jewish brethren. The second key is found in verse 25, and it's Jesus, where he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And we'll describe that when we get to and in a couple of weeks. But the key is Jesus. 
In this whole chapter, you just have to keep inserting the work of Jesus over our lives, who has made the change in our lives. When we looked at chapter 6, we saw that Paul had asked two rhetorical questions that began in verse 1, what shall we say then? In verse 15, what then? And the first what then argues that since God's grace abounds greater than our sins, should we continue, it's a word in the Greek that means to remain in or to continue long in sin, that God's grace might abound even more. So basically, Paul has this argument that he presents that says, since God's grace abounds in our sins, should we continue, remain in sin, that God's grace would even abound more? And his answer to this, it's a rhetorical question, certainly not. That we're not to continue in or continue long in sin, but he went on to present our position as believers in Jesus Christ there in Romans chapter 6. That is a chapter I can tell you that I looked forward to teaching because I discovered some truths there many years ago that helped me in my walk and position with Jesus Christ. The second what then argued that since we are under God's grace, shall we sin seeing that we are no longer under the law? And so his second question and the argument that he presented, thinking of his readers and probably knowing the arguments that were already coming up in the church in that day and age, should we go ahead and continue in sin knowing that we are under grace and not under the law? And again, the answer, certainly not. And then he went on to present the practical side of our sanctification. If you remember, it was probably a month ago that I taught from this chapter, but we talked about the position that we have in Christ Jesus as believers, but also the practical side of our our walk and our relationship with God, our position when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. That's a position that we have in Christ. But the practical side of our sanctification is how we live out that salvation in the day and age that we live in. And chapter 6, Paul did this great comparison, this contrast between believers and unbelievers. And I'll just remind us of it before we get into chapter 7. I think it is important because it's been a few weeks since we've looked at this passage, but also chapter 7 is not a standalone chapter. It's building throughout the letter, and so it's good for us to look back to see what caused Paul to take this transition here in chapter 7. So the contrast that we saw in chapter 6, there were several of them between believers and unbelievers. First of all, unbelievers... We're slaves of sin, where believers are slaves of God. Unbelievers obey sin's lust, where believers are freed from sin. Unbelievers are instruments of unrighteousness. Believers are instruments of righteousness. Unbelievers discover that their unrighteousness leads to death, where believers discover that righteousness leads to more righteousness. In unbelievers, there is uncleanness. In believers, there is cleanness. In unbelievers, there is lawlessness. Believers, we are to be law-abiding. In unbelievers, there is shame. In believers, there is fruit to holiness. And unbelievers, there is death. And there, to the believers, everlasting life. 
So we find in chapter 7 that Paul pictured himself as a representative in a representative way of wanting to live righteously, fulfilling the demands of the law, but yet being frustrated by the sin that indwelt him. There was this realization, and, and I have to tell you, chapter 7, Paul is describing his life prior to knowing Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so that is something that we just look at chapter 7 and realize Paul is speaking about life before Christ. And so we have to take that into consideration as we read through the chapter. Paul addresses the issue, though, of the believer in the law by a somewhat imperfect analogy of a husband and a wife. And he demonstrates by the end of it that the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. So today we're going to see a message that I titled, Freed to Bear Fruit. In Romans 7, 1 through 12, we're going to discover... Three points in the message, verses 1 through 3, the law has dominion. Verses 4 through 6, delivered from the law. And verses 7 through 12, the purpose of the law. I'm going to go ahead and read for context our first point, the first three verses, and open us in prayer. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man." And Father, we know that this chapter is a difficult chapter for many Christians, Lord. We come to this chapter and it seems here in Romans chapter 7 that Paul is perfectly describing the Christian walk and our struggle in sin. But Lord, help us to come through this chapter not realizing that we have a struggle in sin, but realizing, Lord, that we have a, a champion of faith, our Savior Jesus Christ, who paid the price of that sin, that we might be freed to bear fruit unto righteousness. I pray, Father, bless us this day. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So again, here in our first point, the law has dominion. We find that in verse 1, Paul is speaking to his Jewish brethren. He says, for I speak to those who know the law. Now, you can be non-Jewish and know the law. I know the law, and I'm not Jewish to my knowledge. And so he speaks to those who know the law. But I think Paul appropriately is speaking to the Jewish brethren here. He's been given a contrast from the Jews to the Gentiles throughout the book of Romans. He's been talking to his Jewish brethren throughout the book of Romans. He's reminding them that their relationship with God is based upon a covenant relationship that they had with God through the law itself. The Jewish law itself in the Old Testament, the law, it's a word that means to go or to walk. And it is a way for the Jews to know how they were to behave. God gave them direction and how they should behave in every aspect of life. And it could encompass civil law, also criminal law, religious law. 
And it went on in, even into the foundation of what we know in Jewish law today, the Torah. It's something that means instruction or teaching. And the Torah is it's replete with instruction, directives, statutes, laws, rules that were directed to the Israelis, teaching them how they should conduct themselves in this world. But they were under a covenant relationship with God that was based upon the Mosaic law. And we find this in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 8. And so in verse 5, we find Moses saying, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, he's speaking for God, obey God's voice. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. God telling the children of Israel, that first generation that came out of Egypt, God telling them that if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all the people over all the earth, for all the earth is mine. And the people responded in verse 8 saying, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So God challenged the people, saying, if you would walk in the ways that I have ascribed to you in the word, in the law, then you will be my people. And they responded and saying, we'll do all that you command us to do. Then it became a binding covenant with the nation of Israel because both parties made an agreement with one another and God still holds Israel bound to that covenant today. So those who are of, of the nation of Israel, they are bound to the Mosaic law. Paul was bound to the Mosaic law. It was a covenant that God made with the Israeli people at Mount Sinai. He bound them to the law. And it was this binding of the law that Paul is dealing with and gives an example of here in verses 2 and 3 by using the example of a marriage. And Paul uses this example of the marriage covenant to teach, I believe, both Jews and Gentiles, because whether you're Jewish or not, we understand, or we should understand, marriage today. And I said should because we live in a country and in a world today where marriage is not so clearly defined any longer. But historically... So we'll have to go back on historically from the word of God, what marriage and how it's been instituted to how it was viewed up to the last uh, 10 years or so in our world. We find in verses two and three, for a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be considered or called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So we go back historically here in the United States. We can take it all the way back to, I like this from Webster's original dictionary. Don't look at the uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary to get a definition of marriage today because it's a little skewed. But if we go back to the original, Noah Webster, this is what he defined marriage back in the 1800s. He said, 
marriage is the act of uniting a man and a woman for life, wedlock, the legal union of a man and woman for life. Marriage is a contract, both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity till death shall separate them. Marriage was instituted by God himself. And then I stop because he goes on to start quoting scripture in the dictionary. You have to like the original dictionary by Noah Webster because he was a God-fearing man and he was not afraid to let his readers know that. But a marriage license today is interesting to me that as a pastor of Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa and because of our bylaws, there is an agreement with our bylaws in the state of Illinois that I can marry people and when I sign the marriage license, I am technically an authority of the state at that time. I do not say the authority given to me by the state of Illinois because I believe my authority ultimately is from God. My dad used to say that when he would do a marriage ceremony, but the bottom line is the state of Illinois has given me authority to do this legal contract between two people that becomes a binding contract in the state of Illinois that can only be broken by death or divorce. Both a man and woman are bound to one another by the law of marriage. And that is what Paul is trying to represent here. They understood it back then. We don't quite understand it as well. We as a nation today maybe don't understand the marriage as well. We should in the church, but even in the church, I don't believe it's quite understood today. But at the end of every ceremony that I've ever done, I've taken the words that from the Bible, from my dad's ceremony, I kind of uh, used my dad's marriage ceremony originally, and then I kind of tweaked it and made a little bit of mine, but a little bit of dad's. I figure I'm paying a little tribute to my dad every time I marry someone. But I always end the marriage vows with, until death alone shall part you, and ask, do you so promise? And if they say no, then we have an issue, but no one has ever said no. Here in Paul's example, we find as long as a husband lives, the wife is bound to her husband. If she was to marry another man while her husband was still alive, according to the word of God, she is an adulteress. However, if the husband dies, and this is the point that he's after, if the husband dies, then she's free from the marriage contract. In fact, the husband has broken the contract. He broke it. The wife didn't. She's free to marry another man. Even though there's intimacy, she is not considered an adulteress then. And it's what Jesus tells us in Mark 10, verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so the law has dominion over those who are under the law. And so using the example of the marriage covenant, the marriage covenant, the contract has dominion over the couple as long as either the wife or the husband remain living. So we find in verses four through six, that we've been delivered now from the law. 
In verse 4, Paul teaches us that it is through death that we have been set free. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who has raised us from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. The bride of Christ has died to the law. We have died through the body of Christ. Here's the thing in Paul's perhaps a little inaccurate analogy that he had of the marriage contract. The husband dies, but here we find that it's Christ who dies to set us free from the law, that we're in contract with the law. The law didn't die to set us free, but Christ, the groomsman, he died to set the bride of Christ free. We have then therefore died through the body of Christ. As we learned in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, or do you not know as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through the baptism of death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so that we should walk in newness of life. It's through Jesus' death, his death, burial, and resurrection, that we have been set free. We didn't die to set us free from the law, but Christ died in our behalf. And then because Christ died, we then have been set free. No longer bound to the penalties of the Mosaic Covenant because we've been set free as the bride of Christ. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, He, meaning Jesus, He has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we could simply, the law, look at the Ten Commandments, God nailing those to the cross through Christ Jesus. We have been delivered by the work of Jesus upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But we've been delivered that we might bear fruit unto God. Jesus said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing, John fifteen eight. For this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The Lord Jesus has saved us. He's done it with a purpose that we might bear fruit. He saved us, not only that we should go to heaven, but as we make our way to heaven, we're not making our way to heaven, working our way to heaven, because we can't. Christ has already done the work for us. And I think that's a misconception within the church body. It's not a misconception in the Bible but within the church body today, there are those who believe that they need to work their way to heaven. But when you look at scripture, you discover that there's no work that we can do in and of ourselves to gain access into salvation. This is what Paul is arguing here, because Paul, as we continue on in Romans 7, he was a man under the Jewish law who was attempting to live righteously according to the law, and he discovered that he couldn't do it. So the law itself becomes a tutor that points us to Christ. 
But the Lord has delivered us that we should bear fruit unto God. The Lord has commissioned us. He's commissioned us to not only believe that there is a God, to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, to grow in our faith, but to go that we might bear fruit unto God. Father, I thank you for your word and for what it teaches us. And I know, Lord, Romans chapter 7, it's a tough one for us. But Lord, if you could teach us anything, remind us today of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Not freedom to go against your word, but freedom, Lord, to live by the Spirit of God. Freedom, Lord, to live in the fruitfulness that you desire in us. And Lord, though I know that we are guilty, today, Lord, we give you praise and thanksgiving, knowing that you have paid the price of our sin upon the cross, and that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free. And the example of that has been seen through the communion today, through your broken body, through your blood that was shed. Lord, we have been set free. Help us, Lord, to send us forth from this place today, Lord, that we might walk in newness of life. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.